वेलकम टू द मंथली पॉडकास्ट सीरीज ऑफ मार्केट फाइनेंस बाय सागर आई एम योर होस्ट सागर सिंह सेतिया एंड विद टुडे आई एम जॉइंड बाय रिच एक्सेल हु इज अ मार्केट वेटरन इज एन एक्स हेज फंड मैनेजर इज करेंटली वर्किंग एज अ प्रोफेसर एट जीस कॉलेज ऑफ बिजनेस रिनोए एंड ही राइट्स अ वीकली ब्लॉग व्हिच गोस बाय द नेम स्टे विजिलेंट एंड आल्सो राइट्स एक्सेल फॉर ऑप्शंस फॉर सीएमए ग्रुप uh he uh, writes regular on linkedin is also very active on twitter i have been following him since last one year and we have had quite insightful conversations uh hi rich how are you i'm doing very well how are you doing today i am good so let us start with the fomc decision this week uh jay powell uh, sounded uh dovish as per markets he Uh, tried to be hawkish, but market seemed to focus only on the disinflation word. That is spoke, I think, around twelve times during the presser. So, what did you make of the FOMC meet and the presser? Well, I I think you're right. The market definitely interpreted it dovishly. Um, I don't think personally. I don't think he was trying to be dovish at all. I think. I mean, things that I heard, and again, we all hear what we want to hear. I guess right. But yeah, the things that I heard was that. Um, he talked about needing to do more hikes plural he said hikes plural several times less than one hike was priced in um and but he's talking about multiple hikes he still still talked about data dependency he talked a lot about how strong the job market was and we see today that how strong the job market really is um and and so but the one i guess you, you as you mentioned he he did talk about how in inflation has been coming lower he talked about the negative inflation we've seen in goods but he also again highlighted um that he's he's really focused on the non-housing services which are not coming down um and are persistently sticky so i heard these things and i'm like to me that sounded hawkish now it wasn't the jackson hole jay powell hawkishness but it was still hawkish and i guess the market also said that when they asked him the question about financial conditions he said they you know they haven't really loosened that much which um i think uh, you know we might talk about but i don't know what he's looking at because every measure of financial condition, conditions i look at tells me that they've gotten a lot easier but um so i i thought he was trying to be mildly hawkish um not as hawkish as he has been but the market absolutely interpreted dovishly because not only did they not price the cuts out of the curve they added more cuts into the curve so um there was definitely a dovish interpretation even though i don't know if that was the intention so two days back uh, we had the uh, uh, fed funds futures implying a rate cut just before the end of the year yeah and the probability for the march meeting was there was a 50 50 probability of 25 bps hike so markets have been very stable in terms of terminal rate so since october markets have been uh, pricing in 4.75% to 4.8% as the terminal rate for the ffr so what do you think has the today's labor report changed that will the markets price in rate cuts next year instead of this year how do you see the rate project going going throughout this year well i mean to be honest with you based on the the data we saw today and and, and this ongoing strength of the labor market which could potentially even help support the housing market um uh, you know you could argue that they shouldn't price in any cuts because you know if 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 the economy can withstand um 5% interest rates higher for longer and and can still put in in the in the labor market still isn't stressed 
Um, there's reason to think that, you know, there's no reason we have to bring rates back down at all um, until we start to see some problem. And that's that's one some, something the Fed had kind of talked about for several years going back well before the COVID crisis is they wanted to ultimately love to get rates to a level where they had more ammunition when bad things did happen to use just use the rate policy and not have to use things like quantitative easing, et cetera, and the the extra measures. Um, and and perhaps the economy's given them the opportunity to get to get rates to a level where they're going to have more dry powder when they need to help out. So um, I think you can make the case that that you don't need to have any cuts priced in. Now at the same time, the you know the Fed, excuse me, is focused on on price stability and full employment is there is that's their mandate, right? And and we yeah. we talked about inflation coming lower. So um, you know. We have we're starting to see more price stability. It's not back to two percent, nor is it expected to go back mm. to two percent. Um, so that tells me the Fed should still be in play until the CPI is back to two percent. And unemployment rate is setting, you know, is going back to record lows. And so yeah. I think the Fed, based on their mandate alone, should you know should be actively in play still. Personally, now I see what other people are talking about. You look at the leading um, economic indicators. Mm. You look at ISM. Look at ISM new orders, et cetera. You look at the yield curve. There's several indicators that are flashing a pretty yellow warning signal that we're going to be in recession at some point, maybe in the back half of this year. But you know that the chairman himself doesn't feel that way because he talked about still seeing that his base case scenario is a soft landing. And if he sees a soft landing, there's no need for them to, to cut rates. So on the one hand, we have him uh, uh, we have rising rates and the effect of that rates because we all know that monetary policy lags uh, has a lag of around six eight months to a year. On one hand, we are still we we have not experienced a full uh, monetary policy transmission. On the other hand, we have the financial conditions index easing. We have like I think since October now we have seen uh, loosening of financial conditions all over the place. So. On one hand, we have a tightening monetary policy. On the other hand, we have uh, FCI easing and we have plenty ample liquidity in the system. So when I talk about liquidity, we have around $5 trillion of money in ma- money market funds. Then we have a drawdown of TGA uh, around $300 billion. So a lot of liquidity is rushing around the system. So do you think that the rate hikes, the transmission of rate hikes and the liquidity on the other hand, it has been counterproductive to say. I, um, I don't know if it's been counterproductive. I mean, so I think one thing, there's a few things that are kind of going on right now, um, a few different moving parts, right? And so, the, the, you know, the rate hikes are not slowing. Um, they're not, you know, they're not slowing the economy as fast as we would have expected because perhaps the economy has had more underlying strength than than most people thought. And it was maybe perhaps more secular than it was cyclical. Um, and we're seeing that reflective in, in the stock prices, in the credit spreads, et cetera, which are particularly leading to these easier financial conditions. So you're absolutely right on that front. Um, I think though, when, you know, I, I also look at the fact that the Fed's doing QT, but the treasury has been offsetting a lot of that QT. And so, you know, to me, on a forward-looking basis, I'm, I just try to anticipate what what's going to happen in the bond market, not what has happened. And I know financial conditions are have gotten easier, but you know we're potentially going into a debt ceiling debate. And some people think it's a non-event. It's a non-event until it's a, until it's the biggest event of all time. And so even if you put 
a, a small probability on it being a cataclysmic event, you have to consider the possibility that that investors might um, decide to skip a couple auctions while this issue clears up. You're having the Fed um, continue on with QT and the Treasury un, unable to continue to offset that. You're going to have more financing coming through the system um, probably in, a, in a advance of that debt ceiling debate, and so there, there's a lot of supply that's coming in um, into the into the bond market. And you know, I don't know to what extent foreign investors are going to be interested to step in and buy a lot of U.S. Treasuries while this debt ceiling debate is going on. And so I I look at that and I think, okay, from a from a fixed income market standpoint, maybe um, conditions will start to reverse a little bit. The equity market is is interesting. I mean, the equity market right now, if you look at it is being driven by three factors. It's being driven by leverage, volatility, and short interest. Um, The leverage factor is, I guess you could argue, is because the cost of capital, the the second derivative is no longer getting, is going higher, right? It's starting to flatten out a little bit. Not so sure that's the case, but that's what's happening. But short interest factor is is really the, the most important factor that's been driving the market. You know, the the high short interest stocks are outperforming the broader market by by twenty percent this year, twenty percent over the course of five weeks. Um, I, I one thing I wrote on LinkedIn today is about um, what I call zombie stocks, so stocks that are yeah. essentially the Walking Dead, where they're not even earning um, their their twelve uh, forward twelve month interest expense because you know mm-hmm. if you look at EBIT versus interest expense, yeah. these stocks are up thirty percent this year. So it's a lot of short covering that's been driving the equity market higher, which is easing financial conditions. I'm not so sure how persistent that is because those companies are reliant on not the second derivative. They're reliant, frankly, on free money or cheap capital. And and even though spreads, credit spreads have narrowed, the absolute cost of capital for companies you know, is higher. It's still in the 7%-ish range for you know even... Um, BAA credits, not even these lower quality credits. And so I, I still think that there's a lot of headwinds um, in, in the equity market uh, as we kind of look out. So as we know that earnings finally drive the markets. Uh, yep. We have just concluded, almost concluded the earnings season. So how do you see, how has the earnings went on the season? Yet? Well, I think a lot of misses. Yeah, we've, we've definitely seen more misses than we've seen in quite some time, right? We, yeah. We're seeing negative earnings growth. Um, we still see positive sales growth, though that rate of sales mm-hmm. growth is slowing. Um, and so what does that tell us? It tells us that um, companies are missing because of margins. And if you look on a almost on a sector by sector basis, um, you know, we're seeing the uh, the, the neg- negative impact on earnings from margins is, is the biggest driver of these earnings misses. And what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that that companies are no longer able to pass on price increases and therefore their margins are getting squeezed. They're getting squeezed from the fact they can't pass on prices and they're getting squeezed from the fact that labor costs have gone higher. Um, and the job market is still strong, so you can expect labor costs will continue to go higher. And so just you know, the, the, those headline um, adjusted uh, earnings are starting to fall right now. Now, if we look out for the rest of this year, it's still expected to be flat, if not a little bit higher. Um, and so I'm not so sure that um, the analysts themselves have really caught up to what could happen here. I would say I would point to one other aspect on the earnings front that we've noticed is that um, you know what most of what the earnings numbers that we look at, the ones that get reported in the news, et cetera, those are adjusted earnings, right? So those are earnings where stock-based compensation is being added back in, particularly for tech companies or communication services. Um, if you look at the gap earnings, um, so those that 
are in accordance with the uh, the GAAP accounting standards, those have been falling for several quarters now. And so what does that tell you? That tells you the earnings quality is actually deteriorating as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, declining earnings quality and declining margins are classic signs of what we see before a recession. Um, and so we're seeing both of those right now. And so I would add that to the list of indicators to me that are flashing a very yellow warning signal um, that we're going to go into recession. Recession is going to mean continued earnings, negative earnings growth. Um, and so then you have to ask yourself, do we have a margin of safety coming from the multiple in the market or not? And I don't think so, but I think that's the, to me the question that investors have to ask themselves. So what multiples uh, will you assign to S&P and what do you think is the right earnings number that you perceive for the for this year? So $200, 18x? Well, I, I think- That's the scenario. I, yeah, I think while the market right now is still pricing in something on the order of $220, yeah. I, I think $200 is a minimum. I've seen forecast well below that. I'm not anticipating a crash by any stretch, but let's just use $200 because it's a round number. Um, the, the multiple got up to 19 times forward earnings this week. Um, if I look at the level of interest rates where we are, if I look at um, you know where the kind of historical forward multiple has been the last 20 plus years this century, et cetera, um, you know, we, the multiple should be something closer to um, 16 times. Some, you know, 15 times is probably the average set, you know, or for this level of interest rates, 17 times might be the average um, across a, a, a longer period, but I saw somewhere between 15 and 17. So that I just put 16 times to me is a, as a more fair multiple um, for on forward earnings. And so to, you know, I, roughly speaking, I'm looking at $3,200 in the S and P um, 16 times 200 is to me where I think we're starting to get to a level where the, the multiple gives you a margin of safety and where we started to really kind of price in um, the, the, the earnings decline that we that we could see. Now, maybe the multiple will be a little bit higher. Maybe earnings will be a little bit lower. But to me, I think that's a, a good idea for when we get close to there, I'd feel much more comfortable about buying stocks because the margin of safety has gone up. With a with a 19 times forward multiple, that's you know that's a top quintile, if not top decile multiple for the last 20 plus years. Um, and, and, and earnings declines not really priced in yet. I just don't think there's a margin of safety. Yeah, I can I can create a narrative that, that would get stocks to, you know, get multiples to go higher and they get earnings to stay flat. I can create that scenario. I just don't think it's a really high probability scenario. So last week I was reading that in 1980, at the peak of Volcker rate hikes, the 30-year bond was trading at 9.75%. If someone would have bought at that time and uh, hold the bond till maturity, held it in maturity, he would be earning 9.75% till 2010, 30 years. So do you think that we are in a similar scenario today? 30-year bond is yielding 36 to 3.7%. Do you think buying bond at this time till 2050s for someone who is in like his 30s or 40s, is a better bet than buying S&P at 4200 4100 uh no i don't think so i i don't think there's much i don't think there's 
as much as I don't think there's value in the stock market, I don't think there's value in the long-term bond market either, because I personally am of the opinion that we're in structural short, short supply for a lot of the commodities. And so that I think inflation is going to be a more persistent problem longer term. Now, I'm not saying secularly or cyclically this year, I do see the disinflation that people are talking about. I just think for a longer term basis, we might be in secular short supply, especially as supply chains are getting rationalized around the world. And so 3.6% nominal interest rate, um, when I think we could be 2% plus, um, if not you know higher than 2% on a forward-looking basis in inflation, isn't that exciting to me? On a very short-term basis, I think there's value in in, in short-term, you know, in two years and less in, in the bond market. I think for me, parking your money in a money market fund earning 4% plus, um, you're getting paid to wait and you're getting paid to find um, better opportunities. I think when we think of a, an equity market like this, um, I'm not, when, when I kind of point to the fact that I think there's value lower down, I'm not suggesting that we need to be in some sort of structural bear market that lasts multiple years. What I'm suggesting is that we're probably more in a very wide um, and volatile trading range for a period of time until we work off excesses. And so your entry level will matter a lot to the returns that you have. And since you're getting paid to wait, you're getting paid in your money market to wait and find those attractive entry levels. I think there's no reason to feel any sort of FOMO and chase stocks because you're not, I don't think you're missing some wild bull market that's starting here that, um, you know, that's going to last for the next decade. I think at, at lower levels, we can start to see that. But I think there's there's a lot of challenges in, in, in the bond market. And frankly, in, unless we see some sort of material cut in spending um, in the United States, which frankly, we haven't seen this entire century and neither party has shown a willingness to cut, that just means that there's there's going to be an increasing amount of supply of treasuries that's going to be needed to be financed. And I think that creates just a, a headwind to uh, for bond investors myself. So let us move back to the stock market. Uh, since you're an expert in options, recently we've seen a trend that the ODTE options have just exploded. Now they account for around 50% of total options traded. And yesterday I was reading that uh, the call volume in the S&P, just the call volume is bigger than the call plus put volume that was last year. So what is leading this explosion in ODT options and even the call and put options? Um, well, you know, that I think there's a there's a few different drivers. I don't know how I would weight each of those. Um, first one, we have to, you know, that it that the whole idea, if we kind of go back a couple of years, you remember the the idea of the the kind of the Reddit crowd um that were kind of using a lot of optionality, optionality and leverage to uh to you know to buy the high short interest stocks like GameStop and AMC, um, you know, that really kind of not only awakened an equity appetite among day traders, it, it awakened a, an options appetite. And if you look at the tools that are available to any retail investors now to trade options, especially short date options, um, they're, they're very, very robust tools, et cetera. And zero day, zero, you know, days to maturity or zero DTE, as we kind of call them, zero days to expiration options afford the day trading uh the day traders a lot of leverage right if you look at the cost of leverage in your your retail accounts it's 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 crazy it's like 11 12% if you wanted to short 
the market or something like that. But you can you can certainly do that via zero DTE options, and you can do much more cheaply. So that's one driver. But you know, it's it's that's not the only driver by any stretch. You also have hedge funds and market makers that then get involved, and that's yes. they are attracted to where the volume is. Um, those hedge funds and market makers would trade zero day up, op- you know, zero DTE options, one week, one month, one year, ten year. They they'll go to wherever the volume yeah. is going and look for opportunities. And so that's attracted that crowd as well. And then finally, I think you look at long only fund managers who've been sitting in cash. We see that in the survey data, for instance, the Bank of America survey data have been have had high cash uh, positions for quite some time. And there's a lot of uncertainty, right? I've 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 written about it a lot where um, you know, there's a big disconnect between the fundamentals and the technicals, the fundamentals of the economic trend, et cetera, versus the, the technicals of the market. The economic trend looks really negative, but the technical, if you do technical analysis, you're seeing momentum thrust, you're seeing breakouts above trend lines, um, you're seeing a lot of positive technical signals. And so if you're a fund manager, you, there's a lot of confusion about what to do. You know, what's your view over the next month, three months? It's harder to have that view. It's a lot easier to use these zero DTE options, which have a lot of volume, as you were pointing out, you know, if there's a lot of volume in there, you can hedge, you can hedge very particular catalysts. You know, you could have put on one, you know, you could put on a, an option trade for one day around the ISM and then turn it around and done a different trade for the RFOMC and then turn around and a different trade for the, for the uh, non-farm payroll. So it affords some flexibility. Um, and we have to be realistic that whether we agree that these are People should should be trading these or not. It, they are affecting the market structure um, and, and of the, the market microstructure because just look at today. We know we the market was down very very sharply, um, but all of a sudden the market found a bid and some support. And where's that coming from? Um, it's coming from, and you could see it in the change in the implied volatilities in short dated options. It was coming from people who were along the put options were in the money and they were monetizing those because. Again, if you buy in a six-hour option, if you get the move over half an hour, one-hour period, you have to you have to take pro- you have to take profit, right? So yeah. I, I think it's it's a very real phenomenon. It doesn't look like it's you know it looks like it's growing and not shrinking, mm-hmm. and it affects the microstructure market. So we have to really know what's going on there. But I think it, I think you're seeing all types of investors now are are really really active in these. Let us move to the business cycle. Uh, I have been reading you since last one year, and you have been constantly mentioning about the Cantor's Hope model, and housing is the real economy as we know. Now, since the last fifteen twenty days of fortnight, we have been uh, reading on Twitter. I've been reading on Twitter that, for example, home sales have post smallest decline in three months. Median home sales price is up one point one percent since last year. Mortgage rates, as we know, are down like hundred more than hundred bips since the top. Uh, mortgage demand is up 28% from November lows. 21% of homes are selling over list price. So, what do you think? Has the housing market bottom or not? Well, you know, there's it's still a little early because we're you know if we look in the United States, you know, half the country is still um, it's still frozen here in half the country, and so there's no housing that's going on in the northern parts of uh, of America for the most part. Um, and we don't, we haven't really entered that spring selling season. Um, uh, in the southern states, uh, you know, it, it, things have kind of continued on, even though prices have come down a little bit. But prices have come down now. You're seeing, starting to see it reflect. So I think there's some early signs that maybe we we've avoided the worst um, for sure. Um, and and so I, I think 
there's a there's a few things that you point to. You, you mentioned the kind of the the leading indicator. I mean, the housing itself is a leading indicator of the economy, indicator. right? Yes. Yes. So housing leads the economy, but what leads housing? Well, you mentioned the more mortgage applications. Um, you know, the first thing you do when you, if you think you want to buy a house is you put in a mortgage application and you get pre-approved for a loan. So you can start to go out and shop. And, you know, that's, that tells you how much of a house you can afford, but it tells the sellers that this someone, this is a credible buyer. And so that's the, the first step um, that you should always take. I just had a mortgage banker speak to one of my classes and he said that, that's the first thing that anyone should do in the process is go get pre-approved for a loan. We're starting to see those numbers tick up. So that's the first sign that people are not scared off um, of the housing market. And so, you know, what, why might that be? Well, um, you know, we, there's two elements that drive the housing market. There's the cyclical elements of affordability, of mortgage rates, of the job market, et cetera. And then there's the secular component to it, which is driven by demographics. Um, if we look in the U.S. at least, the demographics um, are are very very supportive of the housing market because we have millennials who are have been forming households in record numbers in recent years that are looking to move um, looking to move in, into housing and out of urban locations and this is this is a trend that was maybe it was already continuing but it was probably accelerated because of COVID it was accelerated because of hybrid work or work from home and the need to have. Um, bigger places at home to, to work from, et cetera. But it's it's continuing. And we know that the nation is in secular short supply of single family homes. It's not in short supply yeah. of multifamily homes, but it's in, yes. it's in secular inventory shortage of single family homes. And so there's secular tailwinds um, to housing market. And what was hurting the housing market was the cyclical aspects of the fact that affordability had gotten stretched and mortgage rates had gone up quite a bit. If those are starting to correct themselves, um, as you kind of mentioned, um, then there's a reason to believe that the housing market um, will, will not struggle the way a lot of people anticipated. I personally never thought that the housing market was was going to have anything that looked like the great financial crisis because it was a, structurally a very different market. Consumers were not over levered. We weren't seeing the types of loans, the no, no income loans or the 0% down type of loans um, that were really uh, quite popular, even adjustable rate loans that were so popular before the financial crisis. None of that was occurring. Um, prices had gone up quite a bit, but that was really about the only stressor. Um, and so I didn't think that there the, were the same sort of stresses, but I did re- acknowledge that affordability had gotten you know gotten very, very stretched. And so prices had to correct in some way, either in absolute terms or relative to incomes um, for the housing market to see a bottom. And maybe we're starting to see some signs of that. So uh, I think there is a disconnect between the single family and the multifamily because I've been reading that single family sales are down quite a bit, whereas the multifamily is still moving up. So why is there a disconnect between the two? Um, well, I, I don't. You know, why is there a disconnect? You know, that's a that's a fairly good question. I'm I'm not really sure on that. Um, why there would be the disconnect? Um, one could uh, you know. There's just going to be a, there's a consumer preference that goes into that. You would imagine most of the multifamily is going to be in in slightly more urban locations or or in the what we would kind of call the ring collar around an urban location. Um, as you move a little bit further out from that, you would go to more single family hom- homes in in the kind of the suburban regions, et cetera. Um, so there's probably a consumer preference about where people would like to live, and that might have some indication that perhaps. Um, Maybe that's a that's an indication that companies are moving back towards 
the, the need or the desire to have employees in in the office and and before there maybe right immediately during covid there was a feeling that we would be able to work from home forever and now since um there's a sense that we might have to work at least two or three days in the office people don't want to move as far away from the cities as they were willing to before i i don't really know the answer to that that would just that would just be kind of my guess of why that might be so a week or two back i was reading a substack and you mentioned about the anomaly in the 30 year mortgage rates and the 10 year ust and you yeah. mentioned that there was this last year because of the fed mortgage backed securities the fed was buying a lot of mortgage backed securities so what do you think uh, uh, will there be a mean reversion and if there is a mean reversion then the mortgage rates will fall a lot more than what they are today yeah absolutely so what i was pointing to is if you look at the spread between the 30 year mortgage and the 10 year treasury bond um mm-hmm. over a 50 year period um that is usually falls in around 1.75%. It's not constant but it averages about 1.75% over time. And um but what we've seen is that um in, in periods um of of panic or euphoria it can get disconnected from that. So for instance, right before the financial crisis, that spread went down to 1%. Um you know, there was so much um there was so much supply of mortgages on the behalf of of lenders of all types that that cost of the mortgage had come down considerably then we had the financial crisis and that spread blew out to 3% um ultimately we had um you know government organizations like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac step in um to start to accumulate and buy some of these mortgages from banks and that spread naturally came back um to the 1.75 level right around covid um the spread blew out to 3% again what did we see we saw the fed step in to buy mortgage backed securities and they brought that spread back down um to even below 1.75%. Um last year we saw when 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 the fed started to tighten policy we saw that spread blow out again but this time um in in my discussions with mortgage lenders and banks it wasn't it wasn't the banks themselves that were backing out of the mortgage market um it was the the fact that the fed was having to was looking to because of quantitative tightening sell some of the mortgage backed securities that it bought and this was blowing out some of the spreads um and so now what was we're seeing is that the it's the market itself you know there was there was that adjustment as the fed who had been the kind of the buyer of last resort of mortgages um had accumulated them now they're been selling those mortgages to the market and the market is starting to step in to buy some of those because the spreads had gotten so wide and we're starting to see that spread narrow from that 3% level. So let's just say it goes back not all the way to the 1.75% average but even if it goes back to 2% and and if we have a 10 year treasury yield somewhere around 3.5% give or take right about where it is now you're talking about a mortgage that's at 5.5%. Yeah, that's not that's not the 3% that we had um you know be- during covid but that 3% was a was an anomaly right 5.5% is well below the average 30 year mortgage rate that we've seen over the last 30 40 years in fact when that we had a housing bubble in 2003 to 2005 mortgage rates were higher than 5.5% and so 5.5% is is a as a very average number that brings the affordability issue um to where that's going to absolutely should be supportive of the housing market you know that that and if you think about it we we you know mortgages got up to close to 7 and a quarter percent at one point last fall and so that's a pretty big delta um from in a very short period of time and so 
that's something I'm keeping my eye on. And, and it's, it's taking some time because this isn't the Fed stepping in and immediately tightening the spread as it did post the financial crisis or post COVID. This is the market stepping in to take some of this from the Fed. So it, it's a function of price. Um, but, you know, as that kind of natural greed kicks in and as people think that we've seen a top in the 10-year yield, um, this this mortgage-backed securities start to be an interesting place for people to look to own some of their fixed income at those types of prices. Okay, understood. So let us move to the global macro now. So we have a Chinese reopening underway and we have seen yesterday that the Chinese uh, non-manufacturing PMI was around 54.4 for January, which is a very big expansion as compared to the lows of, I think, 41, 42, which was for the December. So do you think that Chinese reopening will be inflationary or some people, some market participants also believe that uh, the healing of supply chains due to Chinese reopening can be deflationary as well? So which side you are on, inflationary or deflationary? Um, well, I'm on the side of, well, I don't want to straddle the fence, but I'm definitely on the side that, that it, it's in, it's, it's part of my thesis to why I think that we're going to see persistently higher inflation for a longer period of time, because I think China has been a disinflationary influence on the global economy for the last 20 years. But I think yeah. that's changing. I think for many reasons, if we go back 20, we had the 2019 trade war, now, then we had 2020 COVID in the lockdowns. We had the, the, you know, the Suez Canal being blocked. And so supply chain issues, et cetera. And now we have a lot of ESG concerns, um, environmental and social in particular. All of these are motivating factors for why companies want to rebuild their supply chain um, or rationalize their supply chain. It takes a while to do that, but we're already seeing several indicators of how that, that, that is occurring. And what does that mean? Does that mean everyone's shutting down all manufacturing in Asia? No, it just means that the manufacturing in Asia is going to serve the Asian market. And there's new manufacturing going on um, in Eastern Europe that will serve the European community. And there's manufacturing going on in, in uh, being built back in Mexico that will serve the North American market. And so as that happens, you're going to see uh, less of a disinflationary influence of China on all the different markets. But I think in immediately what we see is that, um, you know, is I think it's it's also going to, you know, yes, we've seen trade pick back up between US and China. And some think that that, and that's some of what we're seeing with this goods disinflation that's going on right now in the short term. But I think, you know, China still is the biggest buyer of all commodities around the world. And whether they're buying those from Russia in the black market or buying those from Australia, whomever it might be, um, they're they're going to be a that's going to be a support for commodity prices. Um, and that and that that commodity price support is going to trickle into food, is going to trickle into wages, and it's going to lead to inflation being stickier than the Fed and the ECB want it to be. And so that's part of my thesis why I think um, as we look out over the next year to ten years that it's going to be a more inflationary impulse, even though I admit that it's going to be negative in, dis in terms of disinflation um, because we are going to get rid of some inventory. We're going to flood the market with some inventories in the short term. So when we talk about the Chinese property sector, a very interesting uh, trend has been observed in the last two years post-COVID. So initially what happened whenever the housing market was to crash or correct in China, the government used to 
provide stimulus to uh, stimulus to the property sector. But what we have seen is that in the last three years, they want the Chinese savings to go into consumption. So they want to give an impetus to the manufacturing sector. So I have a chart from JP Morgan Asset Management, which I will share after the uh, after this uh, uh, after some meeting, which shows that the China fixed asset investment by sector has increased in the manufacturing infrastructure sector instead of the real estate sector. So what do you think that if there is the if the government wants to give an impetus to the infrastructure sector, not to the housing sector, can the demand for commodities is not as much as perceived by the market participant. Is it a possibility that Chinese stocks can outperform the housing sector in the China? In China? Yeah, I know for sure, and I think we, we've we've certainly, yeah, as you as you rightly point out, we've definitely seen that. I think, um, you know, when when to me the 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 key phrase that I keep that keeps resonating with me when I think of how I want to approach China is, um, you know, Xi Jinping talks about. Um, common prosperity, right? And so when I think of common prosperity, that, that that means a few things to me, right? That means to me from an as an investor, from an investor standpoint, um, I want to be really, really careful about the companies that I might even consider because common prosperity means that companies need to keep their prices low for every consumer out there. It means that they need to pay higher wages. It means that they can't show a lot of profit growth because that means if they're showing profit growth, that means that they're not taking care of their other stakeholders, which include consumers and employees. And so I think to me, from an investor standpoint, it means structurally lower um, earnings growth um, uh, and, and and therefore, you know, growth from an investor, so structurally lower shareholder growth. Um, I think you're absolutely right, though, that China is trying to transform its economy. Um, it used to be the, and has been the, and still is the manufacturing hub for all of the world. It knows that that's changing, right? If I can see these these trends of companies moving their production elsewhere, um, you know, there's there's very few. I think I I read that almost all American expats have left the country, and so they they know that the Chinese government knows that um, this there's there's a very strong trend here that is that manufacturing for the global market is going to go away, and so <laughs> excuse me, it needs to focus on on manufacturing and jobs. Um, the, to build up this consumer market so that the consumers in China can buy the goods that the Chinese manufacturing is selling. And so it's going to stimulate and, 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 um, and you know, the, the, the manufacturing business so that prices are, you know, and, uh, prices are and subsidize those businesses so that prices are lower so that people can buy those. And, and if people are buying them, then, you know, that's going to lead to the ability for them, those companies to hire more people, which is going to put more wages in there. And then they can have a, a domestic circular economy, which really hasn't been the case. Um, now, the other thing, though, about the real estate market is I know there's been a lot of speculation, et cetera, but, and, and that's been certainly actively cooled off by the government. But the real estate market, to me, one of the reasons why it's super important is this: that's the vehicle through which um, Chinese households save for their retirement by having it, you know, if you're able to make enough money to start to think about saving for retirement or saving to take care of your parents in older age, um, the real estate market buying a second or a third property is how they've chosen to do that. Um, and, and the fact that this market, the property market has cooled off so substantially and hurt a lot of people who have put their, all of their entire savings into the housing market, um, you know, I think that's a that's a really important issue, and I don't. I think the Chinese government still has 
a lot to do in terms of providing some sort of secondary option other than the real estate market to allow people to save for retirement. Perhaps there's an idea or plan that the government itself is going to offer some sort of social safety net, like we have the social security in the United States to help offset some of that, where they're going to kind of create maybe hope, maybe more of an equity market um, vehicles that allow people to save for retirement. But right now, those are not really robust. The equity market trading that goes on in China is much more kind of short-term oriented and and, and punting and, than it is structurally saving for retirement. And so I think that that to me um, is is going to, is you know, that's going to make their job very, very difficult to really stoke a lot of consumer demand because you're going to have that longer term uncertainty, even if you have near term issues, that's going to mean that the saving rate is going to be probably higher, stubbornly higher than they want it to be. So I think I see the trends you're talking about. You can kind of understand how the Chinese government wants to um, structurally change around the nature of its economy, but I think it's going to be a lot harder than I think it is. So let us move to Japan. And uh, I have been covering this since last year. First, I wrote my article last April. I think it was my second or third post on Substack about the contrarian central bank. So the BOJ, the Bank of Japan, was the lone central bank that has that still has negative interest rates. Even after we have seen the how the Western central banks have moved the rate sharply higher in the last 10 months and last year or so. And not only negative interest rates, they have given a stimulus, stimulus of around 14% of GDP in the last seven months via unscheduled bond buying and a repetitive QQE. So the, the amount of money, the amount of liquidity they are pumping into the markets and especially what happened in the last week of December when uh, the the BOJ raised the YCC limit from 0.25% to 0.5%, that put more pressure on the Japanese bond markets. So, and and there has been a there has been a call that in the next 33 weeks, if the BOJ goes on with their unscheduled bond buying, the pace of bond buying they are doing, they will own 100% of the JGBs. So what do you think will happen in Japan? Will we see the end of YCC when the next governor assumes office next month? Or will we, will there be a dead end in the BOG bond market? And uh, it is the biggest bond market in the world, $9.7 trillion. What do you think will happen? Well, I mean, if they continue at the pace they're going, we're, we're going to see the end of YCC because you're going to see the end of the bond market, right? And so yeah. um, this, 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 you know, the whole JGB issue and, and, and low rates, zero rates, negative rates, this has been something that has been a key feature of the market my entire career, right? I started my career in Japan in 1990. And at that point, we're already talking about you know JGB rates at that point. And in the, the middle 90s, um, everyone thought that JGBs, when they got to 1% or so, or one or one and a half percent, thought that it was the, the greatest short of all time is shorting JGBs because yeah. interest rates have to go higher. They've continued to grind lower and lower and lower and lower. It, it, it caused, I mean, I, I absolutely understand how it is, it is. I'm not saying that it makes complete sense based on what we see in the textbooks, because, you know, when we saw the debt to GDP ratios in, in the, you know, 250%, 50%, you, yeah. one would expect to see that currency materially weakening, but we never really saw that, right? And so I think, you know, this is something that um, was kind of, you know, and when we saw this really start to accelerate, um, when the bond acceleration uh, purchases really started to accelerate around the three arrows, po uh, the three arrows policy, when Abe came in, 
um, in 2014. Um, and that's when it really started to accelerate higher. Um, you know, there was, there was a, uh, an idea put forth by, uh, by David Zervos at Jeffries at the time where he, co- he referenced uh, a debt jubilee. And the idea of Je- ju- a debt jubilee goes back thousands of years. It's this idea that, um, at, you know, and, you know, I think it's in, in some, uh, in some, one of the religions, you know, once a year you forgive, um, everyone of, of their, of the debts that, that, that they owe you. Um, and that's, that's the Jubilee. And, and so then it kind of resets everything, um, in the economy. Well, what, you know, his pre- premise was if at some point that the Bank of Japan owns most of the bond market, um, could, you know, couldn't it just then have a Jubilee and write off, um, and, and basically zero out all of the debt that it bought. And then the Japan no longer has a debt problem. If the Bank of Japan, has bought all of the uh, Japanese government debt and it writes it off, then Japan no longer has any debt problem. And you're like, well, that sounds almost too easy, right? So why, you know, why would the market allow that? Well, the way the market wouldn't allow that is if the currency weakened too much, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, for the longest time, the currency didn't weaken. And so the BOJ kept chugging along, buying what it was buying. So, but what do we see last year? Last year, we started to see the currency finally weaken quite materially, right? Um, and, the, and the currency really weakened materially. And so that caused the Bank of Japan then to widen the band a little bit. So it couldn't, it could, it was still being aggressive, but it couldn't be as aggressive as it was. It went from 25 basis points to 50 basis points. There's some people that think that it's going to widen out even to 100 basis points. I, I, I can see why they would say that. However, the the currency has stopped weakening. In fact, it's strengthened quite a bit um, in the last several months. And so the Bank of Japan has been given, the market's been giving it the go-ahead to continue buying it at 50 basis points. And again, to the extent that it continues to buy at the pace that it's buying, and if it could write off that those debts, then the, and the government doesn't have a debt problem anymore. It really kind of structurally changes what how we should be thinking of Japan. Now, now while inflation has been a big thorn in the side for emerging market central banks for the ECB, for the Fed, and they're fighting against that. They have a price stability mandate, et cetera. If we think about the Japanese economy, the lack of inflation or disinflation or even deflation has been the problem that they're fighting. The Japanese, uh, the Bank of Japan and, and the Japanese government want to see some inflation, right? Because inflation spurs um, consumption. If we think prices are going to continue to fall forever, we're going to be you know, we're only going to buy the things that we absolutely need to buy today because otherwise the price is going to be lower in the future. So why would we buy that? Um, if we think prices might start to go higher, um, you know, then then at that point we might start to increase our consumption. And what have we seen is like Japanese wages are are have been held very very low. Um, and there was a Bloomberg story that I've referenced in some of my writings where it talked about how the um, the starting salary for banking um, employees yeah. Yeah. coming out of the yeah. University of Tokyo, which is the most prestigious university, um, as lower in dollar terms than what you can make working in a McDonald's in California. And so that kind of gives you a global idea of how low wages are. And so we're going into now this next round of wage negotiations for Japanese employees, which is kind of coming up at the end of the fiscal year into the new year. So the end of March into April. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll start to see if, if wages start to go higher. If wages go higher and we're starting to see some inflation um, kind of come into the economy, which is going to improve consumption, and, you know, then maybe the, the JGB, or I'm sorry, the BOJ can start to back off the JGBs a little bit. If we don't see that, 
and wages don't go up. Um, so there's, you know, so the expectation for inflation going forward will stay lower. I think the BOJ has the green light, especially with a stronger currency, to keep buying. So I think a lot of that hinges on what we're going to see in terms of Japanese wages in the next few months. So many people predict that ultimately Europe and US, all the developed world will face the same similar problems that Japan is facing today. And that is due to demographics. Yeah. But uh, a, a graph has been, a chart has been floating in social media since last week that shows that S&P is 70% less labor intensive than it was in the 80s. So do you think that this demographic problem will be solved by the productivity gains that we will witness in the next 10 to 20 years, next decade via artificial intelligence or any other new te- new technologies? Um, well, I mean, that's all been, that's that's what we've seen historically. That's always the goal, right? So, um, one one model of how you would forecast uh, GDP would be, you know, it's it's fairly simply the population growth times the productivity growth. And so, if your popular or plus your plus your productivity growth. So, if your if your population growth is negative, you need to see a lot of po- uh, productivity growth in order to not have negative GDP growth, right? In Japan, they've had positive productivity but negative demographics, and so GDP has remained around zero. Um, we haven't seen the, enough productivity growth to get to a higher GDP. Um, yes, absolutely. Demographically, we're facing that problem in the U.S. We're facing the problem um, in in Europe, and we're facing that problem in China. Right? We've seen the the yeah. the, uh, the population numbers get forecast or moved lower um, last year, and the forecast for the next twenty years is that the population is going to shrink quite a bit, which means that China really needs a massive productivity increase or it's going to be in the same state as Japan, if not worse. Um, that could happen, right? Because if you look at the, um, the, the the workforce in China, the education levels in aggregate are much, much lower than we see in, in a lot of other developed economies. And so there's the possibility for a lot of productivity increase in, in China. We just we just haven't seen it yet. So that, that's what's going to need to happen. In Europe and in, in in the US, the scope for productivity gains is maybe a little bit more marginal um, because we already have relatively educated workforces. And so, you know, w- what gains can we get? It has to come purely from technology. Um, but there are, there's also, and you know, before I could touch on the technology, we have to also have to appreciate that that's where this whole immigration debate is so important for the economy. Um, there's, there's people that feel strongly on both sides, right? Especially when we're talking about issues of illegal immigration and not legal immigration, but Europe has seen an in, a massive influx of immigrants um, from the Middle East to North Africa because of political instability in those regions. And this has led to, um, that's been somewhat offsetting the declining demographics um, um, from the from the population that live there. In the U.S., we see a lot of immigrants coming in via the southern border, and that is helping to offset some of the negative demographic influences. And so that helps a little bit. But the technology ultimately is important, right? And we have seen over time that technology, whether it be factory automate or factory efficiencies, and then it was the internet. You know, now you have uh, you know AI and machine learning. You also have robotics. Um, if you think of a, a, a factory, a, a 21st century factory versus a, a 1980s factory, the number of employees that are needed is is a fraction, right? It would have been a 10,000 employees before and maybe it's less than 1,000 employees now because you have so much automation. Uh, and so there there are pro, you know there, there are productivity gains, but it also means that we need to 
ensure that we're training the workforce for the jobs of tomorrow. And so that's, that's a challenge. And so it can happen. And so I, I think that that's what we have. Those are the trends that we have to keep our eye on. But I think the, the other thing that I thought of when you showed that showed me that graph of uh, the, the fact that we need fewer, uh, fewer employees, um, what it was the, the S and P 500 is 70% less labor intensive. Yeah. That's where I think it's important to understand that type of thing when we're trying to, when we're looking at, because you'll also always see graphs of the S&P 500 and, and people will point out the, well, the S&P 500 margins are, are, are higher than they were in, you know, in, in 2020 or 20, in 1980. This can't be sustainable. Or they'll look at valuations in 2020 versus the 1990s and say that can't possibly be sustainable. And what you have to understand is that if there's productivity gains, that means that margins can stay sustainably higher, which means that investors are going to pay, pay higher valuations. And so it, there you have to be careful when you look at valuations and margins over a time series. You have to look at it on a sector by sector basis to really understand what's happening because the index composition is different, but the business composition is different as well. And I know I referenced some of that um you know, some of that earlier in the podcast, when we talk about valuations. So I'm, I'm always kind of careful to go back too far. Um, I mean, there is clearly a tie between interest rates and discount rates and, and valuations, but there's a reason that there that valuations have been slowly moving higher over time. And some of this is because of the productivity gains, which lead to sustainably higher margins um, and, and therefore higher valuations. Um, and so I think that that's definitely a positive for the S&P, um, I think also, though, you have to appreciate that some of that, what we're seeing there is, is due to outsourcing, um, and, you know, outsourcing, which, and so it's not all just that we've got better technology. Uh, there's a lot of productivity gains, um, maybe not as much as you would think. Some of that's from outsourcing, which is being unwound. So there's a lot of crosswinds, a lot of moving parts about how I would forecast that going forward. And, and some of it comes down to the index composition too. Um, and so, uh, it, it's. I think it's hard for me to look at one chart and try to anticipate what's going to happen. There's just a lot of different demographic drivers that are going on. One last question, uh, soft landing or hard landing? Well, I've been calling uh, for what I call a job full recession, right? So, and so we say soft landing. When I think of classic soft landing, that means that we're going to avoid a recession, right? It means that growth is going to slow. Growth is going to be, you know, in the, in the, around the 1% range, and then it's going to pick back up. So we're going to avoid any sort of recession. That's what Jay Powell talked about as his base case. When we talk about hard landing, you're talking about, um, you know, very, very negative uh, GDP numbers and growth numbers that are going to lead to a, a very, very high or sharp increase, in, increase in the employment rate. I yeah. think we're going to see what I call a job full recession, which I think we're going to see GDP go negative, but I think the job market's going to stay strong. And part of that is because the job market, the jolts data in particular, if you look at it, we're still you know 10.5 million jobs short in our economy. Yeah. And a lot of that is because the people that are getting laid off aren't have a different skill set than the jobs that are needed. But I think there's this kind of persistent need for job, you know, for, for companies that need employees. And they found it so difficult to hire people in 2021 and even in early 2022 that I think they're going to be very, very hesitant to lay people off. They're going to continue their hiring at pace. Um, and and there, it's not going to be as, you know, it, the, the technology companies were hiring uh, a crazy amount of people. And even the layoffs, 
from the from the te- the big tech firms, they haven't laid off everybody that they hired post COVID, yeah. right? They haven't gone back to pre COVID employment numbers, and so they still have their employment is still higher than COVID. And those employees that have been laid off have very quickly found jobs. We saw that in the non-farm payroll number today. We see that in the jobless claims that come out every week. Yeah. And so the job market is still very strong. So I think that we'll still see, I still think that the, the yield curve and the ISM and the ISM new orders are telling us that we're going to see a period of negative growth um, yeah. at some point in 2023. I think it'll start probably in the summer, um, but I don't think we're going to see that lead to unemployment rate moving sharply higher. And so that's why I, I call it a jobful recession, um, which is really somewhere in between a soft landing and a hard landing. Um, and, and I'm not trying to straddle the fence. I just think it's something that is is you can see why this could take place given the drivers that we've already seen. Um, and it's hard. It's going to be it's going to be a, a unique and different environment to navigate. But we should be used to that because if we look at the post financial crisis period when we had another type of shock to the to the economy. What do we see in in the years be um, in the years after the financial crisis was a a jobless recovery, right? We saw economic data getting better and better and better, but people weren't hiring. Um, and now, what we're going to see, I think, is economic data getting worse and worse and worse, but people still hiring. And so, it's going to be a, a different different environment to navigate, but not an unprecedented environment to navigate. It's going to probably look a lot more like the post World War II period, and and we have to try to navigate it using that sort of analog. Thanks, thanks a lot, Rich, for your time. Uh, please follow Rich on LinkedIn. He posts daily, very insightful posts. Also, subscribe to his blog, Stay Vigilant. I read the first thing I read on Monday morning in India Times. India Times is his blog. Uh, very insightful about the U.S. economy. Thanks a lot, Rich, for your time. Pleasure Thank you, Senator, for, for having me, and and I look forward to connecting with everybody that's in your network. And you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or fo- or follow me on Twitter and Substack. Uh, I'm I'm always happy to have the dialogue. It it makes us all smarter, and I think that's the goal. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Have a good weekend. Yeah.